G'day mate, Forty here. Uh, I was uh, wide awake and up before 4am. Had my modafinil, my cold shower, my protein drink, and two cups of coffee. So, hope I got that nootropic stack just right. My CPAP machine broke down. I just after getting back from Australia, so trying to trying to get a new CPAP on the cheap without going through the rigmarole of the health system. Right now, I'm making do with a wedge. You know, elevating my head and shoulders seems to you know open up breathing. But saying that because I've got one of those headaches that you get when you have sleep apnea. Anyway, I heard a good definition of truth from uh, philosopher Michael Humer in a YouTube interview because I just discovered this uh, great uh, YouTube channel on epistemology. Got over 3,000 subscribers right, for a YouTube channel on epistemology. And philosopher Michael Humer says truth is that which we have good reason for believing and can survive defeaters. So, for example, let's say you believe in supply-side economics, all right, but by reducing marginal tax rates in certain situations, uh, the government will bring in even more revenue than uh, if it hadn't reduced the marginal tax rates. So that's something that can be empirically studied. You can look at various examples of the government reducing marginal tax rates and uh, if your belief in supply-side economics can survive these defeaters, then uh, you have a pretty solid basis, mate, for believing that supply-side economics is, is truth. But this isn't foolproof, right? You could believe that uh, Prophet Muhammad appeared to you last night at 9pm, and I don't know if there's any effective defeater for that kind of belief and experience. But as I want to do, whenever I discover a new theory or a new fact or have a new experience, I always like to kind of slot it into the prism of how does this show that I'm really awesome and that I've been right all along and one day the world will recognize that. So I think of my podcast my YouTube live streaming are examples of where I share with you things that I believe to be true and that I think there is you know, strong evidence for believing that they are true. And then I may or may not survive the defeaters that you throw my way. Like so often people they give me a point logically, empirically, rationally that uh, defeats my truth proposition. And so if I can't survive the defeaters, then what I'm believing is not true. But if I can survive the defeaters, I've got a reasonable sized audience, and many of my productions will get hundreds if not thousands of views, listens. If I, you know, I can survive the defeaters, then uh, I'm on a pretty good Pretty good wicket, you know. I have a pretty good basis for believing uh, what I think is truth really is truth. 
And I think that's a major reason why people don't like to expose themselves to contrary points of view and read publications and intellectuals with a contrary point of view of their own because they don't want to encounter defeaters. They don't want their those precious, tightly held foundational beliefs challenged and invalidated by various defeaters that are out there. On the other hand, I'd like to think that I welcome defeaters. That if I believe something that uh, can't survive a defeater, then I'm better off because I recognize that I'm believing something that's not true. I heard this one therapist talking about uh, when he's leading a group session and uh, someone in the session says something that stumps him. Right? The therapist claims he welcomes that because one, he'll either find a way out on his own of that defeater, that, that, that being stumped, or he'll have to turn to others for help. And either way, he's a winner. So I'd like to think that I have that same attitude. Right, someone stumps me on a live stream. Either I think my way out of that stumping so they don't take my wicket, or I have to seek help from others, or I have to admit that their stumping is fair dinkum. I've lost my wicket and need to leave the pitch, retire from that particular match. My God, is England off to a good start? What, about 200 runs for just two wickets here in the second day of the fourth test match of the five test match Ashes series against Australia. So it usually gets started about 3 a.m. I think that's how I got into the habit of waking up about 3 a.m. I think that the excitement is palpable. Right? It's hard to it's hard to stay in bed. It's hard to stay late asleep when such a fantastic Ashes Test Cricket series is going on. You know, available through Willow.tv. Just sixty dollars for a year subscription. I mean, who among us can say that they're indifferent or bored by this Ashes series? Right, England's playing the most exciting brand of test cricket ever, Basball. Going up against Australia, the world's number one test cricket team. And uh, I like to watch it with the sound off on the cricket commentary and catch up on my favorite podcasts. I like to listen to Peter Zion's latest. Nothing like a good epistemology podcast and some 12-step recovery discussions. Get my mindset right for the day ahead. And I'm also listening to Bondi Badlands, about a string of up to about 100 murders of gay men in and around Bondi, uh, particularly in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Apparently many of the murdered were teachers who liked to get it off with uh, teenage boys. And here's a really solid epistemological truth that I'm learning from the book, which came out in 2007, Bondi Badlands by Greg Callahan, and then this podcast series by the same bloke for the prestigious Sydney Morning Herald and Melbourne Age. Apparently some of these teachers 
they were writing their names in public toilets with their phone numbers. They were offering to you know, hook up for a bit of rando gay sex. Now, many of these teachers like took pains to be discreet. They, they didn't go to gay bars in case they'd get recognized, but instead of going to gay bars, they'd just go to gay cruising areas like uh, the cliffs over Bondi Beach very social occasion, you get together with the like-minded aristocrats of the spirit in the terminology of uh, Bronze Age pervert. And then, you know, if everything's clicking, right, you just dip into a cave for a little bit of you know, anonymous gay sex. But uh, you know, we're all looking for love in our different ways. You know, some people scroll their names and their phone numbers on the walls of public restrooms. Other people like to go gay cruising. Other people use J-Swipe. We're all looking for love. But uh, what's incredible is even though many of these blokes knew that there'd been dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of uh, pofta bashing episodes where gay men were beaten up and dozens of episodes where gay men were murdered, they still kept returning to the cliffs because they figured, hey, there's a... 25 to 50 percent chance that I'll not tonight if I just show up at 1 a.m. There's probably only a 10 percent chance that I'll get beaten. Probably only a 5 percent chance that I'll get murdered. So the odds may well be 10 to 1 in favor of having a nut as opposed to having my life ended. But it's kind of hard to imagine like teachers putting down their names and phone numbers. So apparently there'd be these raving packs of youths, like working class Sydney lads, who would go to these public restrooms that were became known as uh, gay beats, like gay cruising hangouts. And uh, they'd call the numbers on there, call some bloke up and they'd talk about, you know, how good they were at giving head. And then uh, the bloke would show up at 10 p.m then the six, eight, ten years would set upon him and beat him up because they wanted to teach him a moral lesson that it was not good to be a pofta. So they were in the re-education business. They were, in their minds, delivering divine karma. What's one incredible aspect of these stories is often there were girls around, right, who would kind of uh, encourage them. I guess it's not so incredible because... Now, the more accepted homosexuality is, right, the lower the status of women generally in history. So in ancient Greece, right, that idyllic spot in the perspective of Bronze Age pervert and Alan Bloom, right, pederasty was the highest form of love, man-boy love was the highest form of love, women were just baby-making machines. So Judaism and then later Christianity, the only civilizations that have essentially held that... Uh, Man on man sex is an abomination. And that made you know, the development of the nuclear heterosexual family possible. It uh, encouraged the male sexual genie into the marital bottle, a kind of controlled male lust, and uh, freed up male energy for other enterprises than cruising and picking up randos. So maybe there are some rational reasons why you know, some women are not totally on board with gay liberation.
Oh, some of these blokes would be married with kids, but they'd still put their name and phone number up on these the walls of these public restrooms. Or they'd hang out at these places, they'd get bashed a few times, but they'd keep coming back. Right, they figure, oh, it's not going to happen to me, I'm not going to get murdered. Magical thinking didn't really do the trick. So, just read a great quote from Spinoza. To, we talk about human condition, not to bewail, not to ridicule, right? not to laugh, not to claim that we're better than, but to understand. Right? That's what this channel is all about. Just. Uh, Understanding, we're not here to ridicule. This is a safe space. So just try to understand the human condition. In particular, the different dynamics between in-groups and out-groups. To dilate on uh, matters of truth and epistemic corruption. But uh, reading this book on the Bondi Badlands, just it's kind of bewildering because you're a regular hetero bloke, right? You have no idea of the, the cruising lifestyle, why people would keep returning to places where hundreds of people like them have been badly beaten, if not murdered. Or why anyone would like scroll their name and phone number on the wall of a public restaurant, thinking that that's a good way to find love.